Okay, we opened up in the book of Revelation last week. Any comments? Uh, somebody said we got through six verses, so at this rate, uh, the, the Lord may come back before we finish this, which would be a lot better in a sense. Okay, but uh, any, any comment, insight, anything at all? Now remember, this is Revelation singular. Sometimes they say revelations, you hear this? Um, one thing we're going to see is that uh, this is one of the keys, to, without a doubt, to the book of Revelation as we go through it. Lamb is used at least 26 times throughout this book. The lamb that was slain, the wrath of the lamb, the lamb that leads the flock, all of these kind of, uh, it's almost like a unified theme that will run through. And that's why it figures so prominent in Christian art, in stained glass windows, etc., through, through church history. Uh, sometimes people make a mistake, and they think uh, apocrypha means, it comes from the Greek word, which means things that are hidden in secret. Sometimes they get that confused with the apocalypse, which means what? Revelation, Revelation revealed, disclosed. And again, if you think of a big statue made to Caesar or Nero, they shrouded it, and then they get all the people on that day that they're going to uh, unveil it, you know, they be there and the music is going, and then they pull on the ropes, and that, that's apocalyptic. That's, that's unveiling. That's, that's, and that's, in a sense, what's going on here. First verse, first phrase, Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, we're going to see, and we'll look at how people have taken this in popular culture and movies and music and cults, nearly every cult, uh, we'll do a little backstory on that, has taken the apocalypse, this book and what they think it says, and taken it to an extreme. We just saw a couple years ago with uh, David Koresh in Waco, Texas. He was saying he had the meaning to the seven seals and the scroll in Revelation chapter 4. I mean, it's bizarre. And the FBI was conversing with this guy before the whole place went up. You know, uh, Jim Jones, uh, modern day cults, they all try to draw from this book, but we have the word of God here, and with the, let the word of God by his Holy Spirit speak to us in terms of the meaning, interpretation of this book. So that's, that's good to know going forward. Uh, the other thing, it's the one book in the Bible, a special blessing is pronounced on those uh, that blessed is the one who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy, and heed the things which are written therein. And the idea being, blessed is the one who reads, probably as these letters circulated in the first century, particularly to the seven churches in Asia Minor, you had a reader. They, historians think maybe 20% of the population back then was literate. Probably not for sure, but you'd have somebody read it, and then they would comment, and then the teacher would interpret. But the key here is, blessed is the one who reads, hears, and heeds, or obeys, or follows, the, the, the dictates what's, what's going on in this book. Yes? And then this is, uh, there's seven blessings. They call it Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven instances where you're blessed. And we'll get into this as we go through the book of Revelation. But this is the first mention of seven. Seven is the, the, the book of Revelation is loaded with numbers, particularly 12, seven, which we're going to spend significant time on in the weeks to come. But then you'll see four, you'll see 12, 10, and multiples of those numbers. And they have significance. We're going to see that they do have significance, even in the Old Testament. Why did God arrange the feast days? You know, starting with the week, uh, you'll labor six days. The seventh day, 
will be Sabbath. The same thing with Feast of Weeks will fall on that seventh. The year of Jubilee will come after 49 years, seven times seven. And then comes the Jubilation or the year of Jubilee. So we'll see easy ways to tie in the Jewish feast using the book of uh, the number seven. But then as we go into the book of Revelation, it's all over. It's embedded. It's, it's like the uh, watermark, if you will, all through the book of Revelation. Why do you think seven will be so prominent in the book of Revelation? Ah, completion or perfection. If it is the last book, it would make sense, in a sense, that you'd see the prominence of this number. Okay? And we're going to study, we'll do a serious study. We're going to see how the book of Genesis and the book of uh, Revelation, theologians call them bookends. What starts here ends here. Curse starts here, no more curse here. You know, there's, there's, there's a sea, uh, lake and sea here, no more sea, only rivers here. We're going to go all through. And you'll see why this is a completed book, uh, the book of the, the Bible, the canon, what we call. We don't need another book. And that's what happens. It, it, through, through history, somebody will come up with a new revelation, and they'll codify it into a book, i.e., the Koran, the, the uh, uh, Dianetics of Scientology, the Book of Mormon, uh, New World Translation, Jehovah's Witness. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have a completed volume. Now we have inspiring writers and teachers that give us books that have blessed our lives, Pilgrim's Progress, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, to this present day, but this book is completed and different than all others. Any thought on that? Is it? That's why we've got to be in this book. We mean the Bible. We have to be in this Bible and be, be biblically literate people today. Okay, now, he says, notice the transmission, just by way of quick review, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So who does this come from? First and foremost, the book of Revelation comes from who? John. No, before John, who gave it to John? Okay, where's the starting point? I'm not going to give you a test on this stuff. Just tell me. The Father, God the Father, to Jesus Christ, to his angel, to John, to us, the servants. That's all in verse 1. Do you understand the transmission, how this comes down? You know? And we're supposed to be faithful servants to take the message from, from hence. Okay, now... Now uh, we're going to get into... Uh, as we go through this book, I just want to note a couple of things here real quick. If you notice the word from, and you go down to chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, many believe this is the, the, the Heavenly Father, who's gonna, we're going to be seeing in a minute, who's going to be sending the Son at his second coming. And then it says, and from the seven spirits are before his throne. Who might that be? Who might this be? Um, the seven spirits. I said, might be a reference to the Holy Spirit. We'll pick that up later when we get to the throne room. It goes back to Isaiah 11. 1. We looked at that last week. So it's from the Father, from the Son, and then verse 5, and from who? Jesus Christ. Do you see the Trinity? Uh, and I'll note that as we go through. We'll special emphasis will be on the deity of Jesus Christ and the Trinity and how it works together in concert. Because end of the day, um, we more than anything... Uh, we want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, that, I went through the goals for the course last week. That's what we want to see. 
we want to understand this better. We want to be able to maybe perhaps explain some of this book to people. There, there, a lot of, even unbelievers are interested in this book of Revelation. But more than anything, we want to see it transformational, that somehow it impacts our lives. It edifies, it illuminates, it convicts, encourages, etc. Yes? Okay. Now, um, also, it will say here, it's introducing Jesus, uh, verse 5, faithful firstborn from the dead. Notice the titles. Again, the book of Revelation is laden with titles of Jesus. All kinds of different titles are assigned to him. But notice where it says, um, firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Why do you think that might be important at the very beginning, that the readership knows this, that John's writing to in the first century? Not just the first century, but why do you think that ruler over all the kings of the earth? Yeah, I mean, who was oppressing God's people all throughout history? Kings of the earth, right? Kings of the earth. Keep the finger here. Just turn for a moment. Go back to Psalm chapter, Psalm 2, just for a moment. And we'll, we'll get back into these Old Testament texts because really... Revelation is illuminated by the Old Testament. That's what it references. But notice verse two, uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against who? His anointed. Who's the anointed one? That's Messiah. Mashiach is the anointed one, the Christ. The Christ, the Christ. And they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away. So what are the rulers and the judges and the kings saying, basically, in this, in, in modern day language? Let us break their bands asunder. Let's, what are they saying? Do they want his rulership? Do they want his kingship? No, let's break his bonds. We want no, we want no authority coming from God upon our lives. Not only that, these are rulers. These are kings. These are... You know, just like it says that in Revelation, Jesus is king over all kings. You understand? Then it says, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. We'll cover that as we move into Revelation, the wrath of God. And distress them. And yet I have set my king, Jesus, on my holy hill. I will declare that, now it's our Lord speaking. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. We'll see this today where God gives it over to Jesus, his son. The rulership, the reign, the kings, the, the right to the earth. And uh, it says, uh, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. What did Satan try to tempt Jesus with in the wilderness? Bow down before me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Remember? Here God the Father is promised this to Jesus. Why? Because he has to go to the cross first for the perfect plan of redemption to work out. Um, you shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We'll see that in Revelation. Now, this is like, there's the father sets his son on the hill. The son says, you are, he, my, God says, you are my son. I, you know, you're going to rule the nations. It's like the Holy Spirit speaking in verse 10 where he says, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Okay? We, when God's wrath is kindled but a, just a little, we're going to see it's like scorched earth. Can you imagine if his wrath was magnified, full, full tilt? 
But he said, this is, this, is, this is God. He's always reaching out to rebellious people to come to him. His mercies are new every morning. Do you see the tone of this shifts here from wrath to, to come on, serve the Lord, come before him. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. You perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Okay, That's kind of a, almost a summation of the book of Revelation. You're going through this tremendous warning. God's wrath is being poured out. But through it all, God is saying, come to me, repent. Come on, you'll be a blessed people, even though you go through difficult times, even though you may go through persecution, whatever, trials. You know, it, it speaks to me of God's holiness, and it speaks to me of God's mercy. And oftentimes, people will focus on the one and not the other. That's why... <laughs> Today, people, if they just focus on the love and mercy of God, they, they, it becomes very, very inclusive. They, they, it really, we diminish the price Jesus paid on the cross for us because we don't include his holiness, his righteousness, uh, which can result in wrath if we turn our back on it. So you have to keep these attributes of God in tension, in balance. Do you understand? Perfect, perfect balance. His perfect love, his perfect holiness, his perfect mercy, his perfect righteousness. And that is focused on the cross. The cross will show us the depth of man's sin and the heights of God's love. Yes, please. Two. Psalm two. Somebody else had their hand up on this measure? Okay. Let's go back to Revelation here. Um, now, so he's kings of the earth, and, but I love what it says here in that verse five. To him he loved us and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice, he, he loved us, he washed us, Verse 6, he has made us kings and priests. Some people in verse 5 have what? He's released us from sin? Release. Release. A lot of it has released from sin or washed in his blood. The three things God has done for us here, Jesus has done for us. The verb, love, washed us or released us from our sins, and he's made us kings and priests. Notice the order. He didn't love us. The wash does not come before love. He doesn't love us because we're clean and we're all this kind of stuff. He first loved us. God loved us in that yet we were, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Okay. Now, uh, here it comes. Now, we, th this is where it leads to verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Now, if you study the Gospel of John, you'll see it opens up, John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And it goes, <clears throat> and it presents this high view of Jesus Christ. He's God, very God. Come in the flesh. The word became flesh. But then John the Baptist introduces Jesus at the Jordan River by saying what? Behold the Lamb takes away the sins of the world. And as you go through the Gospels, you're beholding the Lamb. Perfect holiness, perfect power, perfect everything, right? So the curtains open up, and he's saying, Behold the, the Lamb of God who takes away. So too, in the Revelation, John has established Jesus, King over all the earth, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, all these kind of... Then he says what? Behold, he is coming. John introduced Jesus at the River Jordan, his first coming. This is going to introduce his second coming, okay? Which we should be very aware of, you know. And he's going to say, Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, this is in stark contrast to his first coming. His first coming, he's, he comes into this world. Some uh, 
inauspiciously. It's at night. It's in a, a stable or a cave. You know, the shepherds have to come and get directions. He's going to be in swaddling clothes. He comes incognito, really, you know, as a servant. Jesus even says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. He allows himself to be judged by wicked men. He allows himself to be put on the cross. He allows all of this. First coming. Second coming, it's... He, 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 I don't care if it's night or day, he illuminates and says here, we're going to see later in Revelation, so that every eye, everybody around the world will see him. That's how powerful, luminous this thing is. We'll get into this. And it says, every eye that appears to him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Why? Because he's coming in judgment. He's coming. Okay? That's why we're urged to, to repent and flee the wrath to come. You know, we, we have this space here right now where we sit it's called the church age or the age of grace or the dispensation of grace. But we're, we're in this place right now where if you hear his voice, harden your hearts for what? When's the day of salvation? Today is the day of salvation. That's the beauty of God's long suffering. Did you, somebody had a question over here? Or oh, I thought I saw him. Um, so he's coming. Now, keep a, keep a marker here, but turn with me to Zechariah, uh, if you will, please. Zechariah um, chapter 12. And this is written perhaps a, a, a six, seven hundred years before the coming of our Lord, you know, the start of the New Testament. And notice um, Zechariah chapter 12. And when you, we study the prophets, minor or major prophets, you'll notice they'll be, they'll be given a, a particular proclamation or prophecy or even a prediction and then something's embedded that like this thing has this it might have a present fulfillment but it's got this future far off near and far they call it you know so this is what we're picking up here in chapter 12 of verse 10 of Zechariah and the Holy Spirit says through the prophet and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and the supplication then they will look on me, the Lord speaking, whom they have what? Pierced. Pierced. Do you see what God's saying here? I'm coming, and all the tribes of the earth and all are going to look on me whom they have pierced. It's not just anybody. It's this one whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. So again, you have these elements of the coming one, but this coming one, the Lord, is pierced one. He's, he's redeemed us by the shedding of that blood. And then you scroll down a little further in Zechariah uh, chapter um, 14, in verse 4, and then it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand where? On the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east, and on the mount, now all of she's split in two. So it's the coming of the Lord, it located us in Jerusalem, specifically Mount of Olives. Therefore, when you turn to Acts chapter 1, jumping over to Acts chapter 1, and then we get back to, to Revelation, we're just seeing how this is, these threads are, so to speak, tied together. Acts chapter 1, of course, our Lord has been on earth after his resurrection for how many days 40 remember 40 days precede his ministry when he's 40 days in the, in the wilderness and 40 days post-resurrection the fulfillment of his ministry uh easy to remember the 40 
So now he's given his last instructions because he's about ready to go back to his father. And they say to him, um, verse 6, Acts chapter 1, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, why is that not a, a valid question? It's got issues, but the, the, what, it, what might be going through their minds? This is just believers here. These are apostles, perhaps disciples are in this group here. What are they? Pardon me? Plus, he's done what? He's gone to the cross. He's beat death. He's risen, you know, fulfillment of prophecy. And they're saying, at this time now. The problem with this, Jesus says, give his last marching orders to them in Matthew 28, saying what? Pastor referred to it this morning. Go make disciples of all nations, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. So, but the, it's curious. They're just asking this. We, is this it? Is this the summation of God's redemptive plan? And our Lord says to them this. Seven, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses. That's, that's critical, that word witness, because John, we're going to find out, is banished to Patmos when we get back to Revelation because of his witness, because he's witnessing. What I mean, he's declaring his life is, is under the rulership of Jesus. You know, he's a Christian. He says, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. No, notice the cloud. We saw that cloud in Revelation. Behold, he's coming in the clouds. What does cloud often represent, or mean? I don't represent, I mean cloud. Where do you see clouds in the Old Testament? The Exodus. The Exodus. What, what, what's going on there with the cloud? There's a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. It represents the physical manifestation of God's presence amongst his people. So when the cloud is over the tabernacle, he's there. And then when it starts moving, they got to get moving. And at night, it'll be a pillar of fire. Okay? And so then you'll see it on the mount. When mount, he goes up to Mount Sinai. You see the cloud when the dedication of the temple. Solomon, the cloud fills the temple. The she, they call it Shekinah glory. You know, it's luminous. It's bright. Uh, it, it's hard even to... To describe. That's why they have a difficult time describing it. And then when you come into the New Testament, think of the transfiguration. There'll be a cloud. You know, again, it's the manifest presence of God over our Lord, right at that Mount of Transfiguration. But here in Acts, it'll say, he went up in a cloud, and while they looked steadfastly toward him, um, it says, who, verse 11, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, who they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? <clears throat> well, all the believers saw him. It's in a cloud. How's he going to return? Revelation, he's coming back in a cloud. You see the symmetry here, the, how it's connected. Any thought on any of this before we move? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it, it's all tied together. It, the, the, the book Jesus says in John chapter 10, Scripture cannot be broken. It, it's a seamless, like his robe, it was seamless, no start, no finish. So too the Word of God it has a seamless quality to it. It, it. it's just seamless. What I find interesting, and we're going to study when we get into the throne room, 
uh, when we see Jesus in his exalted glory, uh, it says, John saw the lamb as it was slain. It says in Zechariah, when the Lord returns, they're going to look upon him whom they have pierced. Did, did Jesus' wounds exist in his resurrection body? Yes or no? Why, why do you say that? Showed who? Thomas. Now, th this is an interesting thought. If you think of everything man did on this planet, the Colosseums, the aqueducts, microchip computers, jet airplanes, microwave ovens, cable TV, everything, pacemakers, the only thing that may have made it into heaven that man did on this earth was what? The wounds we put in the Son of God when he visited this planet. Maybe. Anyhow, we'll pick that up when we get to chapter 5. So, so now we establish he goes up in the clouds. He's coming back. No matter how we look at this book of Revelation going forward, uh, that, this is crucial, what he's saying in Revelation chapter 1. He, he is coming. Okay, that, that's, that's an established fact. Uh, matter of fact, um, those who would deny this uh, are denying the word of God, specifically the word of God. And it, it, it's, Peter even would go so far as to say this in uh, 2 Peter. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. He says that, uh, he says, okay, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles, Knowing this first, that scoffers and mockers will come in the last days, walking in their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? They don't believe in the second coming of Jesus. Why? Because they don't even believe in his first coming. You get what I'm saying? So what this, what this book has, to, it, it incre I really think it increases our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's, and it gets us ready. You know, it gets us, it puts us in a mindset of being ready. What does it say in 1 John? <clears throat> to as many as have this blessed hope, that is, the blessed hope is the return of Jesus, do what? As many as have this blessed hope, what, what do we do? It, it should move us to action. It's just not anticipatory, like, oh yeah, he's coming, I agree, he's coming back. How does it move upon us? As many as have this blessed hope, purify themselves. That's why they'll use the bride and the bridegroom. The bride is busy getting ready. And, but it, it, should, it should motivate us to be ready. Not have any issues with unforgiveness. Deal with sin. Put off every way to sin that so easily besets us. Uh, share, like Pastor said this morning, share the good news with others. You know, be about the work that the Lord has called us to do because he is coming. You know, he's coming. I mean, I firmly believe two things could happen today. Number one, the Lord could come or I could go to be with the Lord. I'm just saying. It's, it's, you know. Now, there's other issues when we go through the predictive prophecies and stuff, but I firmly believe that with all my heart. He's coming, and or we could go to be with the Lord today. One of us could just go be in the presence of the Lord. So what do we do? We prepare now. Okay? Yes. Yes, Yeah, with the, with the uh, lamps, be full of oil. The admonition being there, of course, is to be full and be, be in the Spirit, be full of the Holy Spirit of God, and be walking in the Spirit, not in the ways of the world. Because we're going to see, as we get in the book of Revelation, the world, which, which is just, uh, I don't mean the globe world, I mean the world system, uh, has its own 
It almost has a moral gravity to it. it, it, it but left on our own, we will go down spiritually. That's why we must be disciples. We must be disciplined. We must be intentional. Because the world has a quality, almost it's lethargic. It just kind of, you know what I mean? You got to keep, keep that. I mean, that's one of the reasons we have fellowship, regular word of God, regular times of corporate prayer, private prayer. It requires, you know, somebody says serving the Lord is like riding a bicycle up a, up a hill. You stop pedaling, you, you know, you got to keep going, you know. Uh, it's just what it is. We just, and that's what, that's these admonitions in this book is to keep on, to press on. Persecution may come. You might have sunny days and bright days. Okay. But John's saying, keep your eye on the prize. Run the race with your, with the end in mind, with the, the end goal in mind. Live your life with the, It's like a, a young student go to medical school. You know, it could be expensive. It's grueling, the studies, the setbacks, the sacrifice. But if, if that woman or that guy thinks that, yeah, but after the end of all this, I'm going to get that medical degree. I'm going to be a doctor. That could get him through all this stuff. Yes? All this difficulty. Same thing with a soldier going over. If he knows we're going to win, this is going to be victorious. I can go through this, whatever it's going to be. Okay. Revelation now. So now we see, behold, he is coming um, with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And here's where John is starting to get a look. God's revealing uh, the coming of the Lord, okay, uh, in a preview, if you will, or a snapshot. Why this is kind of curious in one way is that if you remember at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus did the miracle of the fish on the shore of the Galilee, and he said to Peter, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And then he said something very interesting. He said, uh, Jesus said, um, he turned around and he says, uh, the one that John says, the, the one uh, who leaned on Jesus' breast at the supper, and that's implied to be John, the one whom he loved, that's in John, Peter said, well, what's going to happen to him, Lord? You told me what's going to happen to me. And Jesus says, if I will be, that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Follow me. See, he's saying, what if I let John stay here until my coming? What's that to you? And then the, all the apostles say, then the, the saying went out that this disciple wouldn't die uh, until he saw the coming of the Lord. But the, Jesus says, that, that's not what I said. If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now we know that John is long since dead. But did he see the coming of the Lord, a preview, a, uh, you know, how they do with movies, a little, uh, in the coming of the Lord in Revelation? which he shares with us, you know. It's very interesting how these things kind of tie together. Okay, now he says, um, every tribe also, then, now here's the titling, here's who, here's who Jesus is, if you will. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the very phrase was assigned to the Father in, um, in verse 4. And what does this speak of? What is the attribute here being described? What is the attribute? What, what, what character of God is being described here? When he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. It's showing his, he's, yeah, it's certainly showing his deity, but he's omnipresent. 
God doesn't have a past, a present, a future. Remember when at the burning bush, Moses says, well, okay, you're going to send me back to confront Pharaoh, but who am I going to say is sending me? You know, when you got sent on a mission, you took the name of the king or the, you know, he, I come in the name of so-and-so. And what did God say to Moses? You tell Moses, I am that I am. And that would become the sacred name of God in Jewish uh, literature. You know, they don't even want to say it. Uh, but it, it, it suggests that God has no beginning, he has no end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And now this is being assigned to Jesus. Do you understand? Uh, I, those are the Alpha and Omega. Now, what it, what's going on here, up here, of course, in the Greek alphabet, uh, you have the Alpha, and then the last is the Omega, and so from A to Z, okay? From A to Z, but then he adds to it, no beginning, no end, the first and the last. That's why oftentimes a circle is used in a sim symbol of God. We're finite. He's infinite. You know, we got to understand this, 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 this. And why this is so important in our day and age, because one of the major attack points of critics of Christianity is what? Pardon me? Well, well, I mean, critics. Many people, even overseas, many people like Christianity, many people like the model that Jesus exhibits okay you know love one another and all this but what is it they don't like uh it's a point of a criticism or attack point <laughs> he's the only one that's one yeah i'm the way the truth the life nobody come to yeah that that you exclusivity in a tolerant society yeah what else yeah his crucifixion that he died they'll deny the big thing is the deity the deity okay that that that's hard you know my wife and I have worked with Muslims over the years, and they, 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 they honor the name of Jesus. It's revered. They call him a high and holy prophet. But I tell them, I says, look, he is not a holy prophet if he said and claimed the things he's done. Because Moses, Zechariah, Elijah, Isaiah wouldn't say, if you see me, you've seen the Father. They wouldn't say, your sins are forgiven you. They wouldn't receive worship. They wouldn't say, I'm coming back in clouds of glory to judge all mankind. You see, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. That's why we have to know what we believe, how to explain that to others, and then necessary in some forms to defend it. You know, when people say, no, that's not it, he didn't say that. You know, this, this, is, the big, this is the big central pillar, uh, if you will, of the Christian faith. Most all other religions would stand if the founder was gone. If you had the, the form of noble truths of Buddhism, you could work it out. If you had the five precepts of Islam, da da da. But if you don't have Jesus, his death and resurrection, it collapses. That's why Paul says, if there's no resurrection, we're to be, we're to be uh, what does he say? Pity. pity. Yeah, pity. Like foolish people that believe in the tooth fairy or this, you know. But if that, if that central pillar holds, as we know it does, then we can build, the rest of our faith is built upon that. Yes? And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we called him Emmanuel, God with us. Very, very important point. Somebody had their hand up over here. Yes, please. You know, in the earlier forms of the Hebrew alphabet, the Paleo-Hebrew, the elite of the Tav were the first and the last letters mm. of that alphabet. The elite at that time was in the form of like a cow's head. And the Tav was in the form of a cat. And if you look at the first sacrifice in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, there was an animal sacrifice. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, you know, all you see these features, 
uh, coming together in, in the person of Christ. Um, again, uh, this is one of the things the book of Revelation is going to do. And I think that's one of the reasons it spends so much time in the different titles that it assigns to Jesus throughout. And so he says, um, now let's look at some of these things that are going on here. Uh, now this is out of Isaiah. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no other God. But he's, he's using that language, the first and the last, um, Alpha and the Omega, way back, in, and, and making this declaration, there's no other God but the God who is the first and the last. You know, uh, again, he'll say, uh, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called ones. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. I mean, when Jesus is confronted with the religious authorities of his day, and he makes the statement, before Abraham was, I am. What do you think, what did, what did they want to do with him? They wanted to stone him. Why? Because they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. You know, that, that, that's, that's, that's the issue here. You know, that, that is really uh, the big issue. And when Jesus makes this kind of declaration, there's always this reaction. You know, um, people just go back. I mean, you'll see this at his trial in Matthew. Um, let me turn here real quick. But it's this idea that uh, he's making this declaration of who he is, and they don't want to receive it. It's just too, uh, it's just too much for him, so to speak. Um, look at uh, Matthew chapter 26. This is in his trial. This is one of the last trials he's going to be, you know, he has three civil trials and three religious trials during that Passion Week, those frame. He says, um, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63 it says, um, they're, say, they're asking him all these questions, basically. 62, it says, the high priest arose and said, do you not answer anything? What is it these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under an oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ or are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? You see what the priest is doing here, the high priest? What's he doing? It's, it's, a, it's a theological move he's making on our Lord. He's, he's, say, he's putting himself with a high priest. He's putting him under oath. Now, remember, Jesus came, and he was under the law. So he's going to respond to this question. The high priest is in the temple. He's asking the question. And it's like, I don't say Jesus released to say it before he was silent. And I says, okay, you want to know? He says this. Jesus said to him, it is as I said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in clouds of glory. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He spoke in blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Now we've heard it. They said, Let's put him to death. You see? You see how it all ties kind of together? That he's declaring his second coming in clouds of glory. That, 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 that belongs only to God himself. Yes? And Jesus is plainly stating that. Plainly stating that. Okay. We'll go back to Revelation. Now, uh, this idea... Uh, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the, the beginning and the end. Only God incarnate can make such a statement. Only Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Period. Uh huh. Yeah. That that's it's firmly established. That and, and what's going on today in Christendom is this thing is moving. People want us to be more tolerant, or somebody said less, uh, more inclusive, more you know, broaden the. Uh, requirements, so to speak. You know, what does it mean? Well, maybe he doesn't mean he's the only way. Maybe he means he's one of the good ways to get, or maybe 
there's many roads to the top of the hill and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't allow us that room. You know, he, this is it. Uh, that's why all other religions are based on a teaching. Ours is based on a dying, rising savior. What's that about, you know? As well as the good teaching, don't get me wrong, but I mean, that's the, that's the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that, you know, death, burial, according to the scripture, rise the third day, according to, you know. My buddy says, Jesus did not come to die to make nice people nicer. Jesus came and died and rose to make dead people alive. <laughs> See? <laughs> Sorry to say that, you know, but uh, any comment on that? Pardon me? The first commandment says, Yeah, I'm the Lord thy God, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, you know, and this is what's going on here where he's establishing this. And then he says, okay, verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. We're going to see this later used in the book of Revelation, particularly at the end. Uh, notice the emphasis there on Almighty. Then John, he introduces Jesus, now John introduces himself. He says, I, John, this is the third time he mentions his name, John, in the first chapter. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation. Isn't that a nice address, though? This is the great apostle John. And what is he saying? Brother. I think the highest title we can call one another, you know, I don't know what it is. We, we, we love titles, you know, and this and that. But the highest title I think we can call one another is brother and sister. You know why? Because if you have the same father, what does that make us? Siblings brothers and sisters. And here, John is using that title for himself, his brothers, you see, they said brothers uh, and, and, and companions in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ. They're going through it now. We're going to see he's been exiled to an island off of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, uh, banished, if you will. He's on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he's there. He wouldn't he wouldn't disclaim this. He would not uh, back away. Uh, he would only stay with the witness that he's a, he's a child of God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. So he's now on Patmos. Uh, Patmos is a little island, uh, volcanic rock at one pretty much. Uh, it's off. I don't know if you can see it there. But here's the seven churches we'll get into next week. Here's Patmos. And uh, this is just a modern-day kind of thing. There's tours and that you can go there. Has anybody been to Patmos here? Have you been to Patmos? Did you go to the cave of St. John? What do they call it, the cave of the apocalypse? It's a small island, though. What is it, 10 miles? Would you fly from Istanbul? How'd you get there? Oh, Greece, okay. Um, so there, there's Turkey, Asia Minor. This is really where Christianity springboarded from. I mean, it starts in Jerusalem. First missionaries go from Antioch, but Asia Minor, Turkey, is really the uh, launch pad, especially with the city of Ephesus. There's a, many think that John lived in Ephesus at one time, died in Ephesus, and of course Paul will get into that. Uh, he establishes a beachhead there. I think he's going to be there two years as a headquarters sending out missionaries. Um, uh, there it is again. There's the seven churches. There's Patmos right there. Okay, and there is the, the you can go in there and supposedly, you know, this is the, the, where John lived. You know, again, he's a prisoner. He's an old, they think he might be 85, 90 years old at this time. We're not sure. Uh, but he lived there. Pretty much a prisoner is a, a banishment, not chain prisoner necessarily, but 
banished there. And then later, they think when a new emperor came in, uh, they will release uh, John and let him go back, and he basically dies. They think he dies in Ephesus then. Okay, John says here, I'm on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you think people are being imprisoned, banished, and killed today for this very thing John was? Yeah. We're going to bring out statistics where some, some church historians think the 20th century and what, going into the 21st century have more people have been persecuted for the, for the name of Jesus Christ than all of uh, the history up to that point. We'll look at that. But he, this is nothing new. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a lot. Now he establishes where he's at. Now he's going to establish uh, uh, what he's doing there, as it were. Um, now, he says, I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day. When you look at, uh, in the Bible, men of God, women too, they'll often get a vision. Uh, what's the difference between a vision and a dream? God reveals himself in both ways. A dream, you tend to be asleep. And a vision, you tend to be awake. It's not real deep theology. It just <laughs> it's like Peter in Joppa when he's on the rooftop and he gets that vision of the animal. And so here John's in the spirit. He's, he's, he's in the spirit, uh, almost, uh, let's say, an altered consciousness state, but he's, he's in the spirit. He's going to get this revelation. Uh, it's like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he's caught up and he's in the presence of God. And he says, woe is me, for I behold the Lord. And later, John will have, it's almost like a physical in chapter um, four, where God says, come up here. And then he's going to be in like the throne room of God. It's a little bit different than this one. You see vision and these kind of things are going on. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, some people will debate this with the Lord's day, what it means. General acceptance is it's, he's there on Sunday. We must not confuse the title, the Lord's day, with the day of the Lord, you know? What's the day of the Lord generally mean? You'll see that in the book of Joel, Isaiah, Richard. Yeah, it's a judgment. It's the coming day of the Lord. It's, it's a, the great and terrible day of the Lord. You know, it's that final. Uh, we don't know how long that lasts. It could be a period of time. We're going to see. If I was to say, uh, um, Peyton Manning was a good quarterback in his day. That didn't mean he just played one game. You know what I mean? You know, the day could be an extended period of time. So we'll talk about that when we get into the, all this literary and metaphors that are used in the book of Revelation. And so why the Lord say, why is Sunday? Okay, it was on the first day of the week. It says, this is quoting from Acts. First day of the week, of course, is what day? Yeah, there's, you know, six days you work, seventh day is Sabbath, and then the day after Sabbath is, starts that new, you know, they call it the first day of the week. And of course, Jesus rose on the first day of the week, we gather with the local believers to share the Lord's Supper. Um, Paul was preaching to them and says, so you see this idea, they're gathering together, they're having the Lord's Supper, there's preaching, there's teaching. Not that dissimilar, perhaps, a service here in many ways on a Sunday. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, uh, every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Because they would often gather money to take it to Christians who were hurting or going through famine. Oh, yes, somebody here. Uh, again, Jesus rose on the, on the, from the dead on Sunday, first day of the week. That starts the new creation, if you will, the new. Uh, the other is Pentecost occurred on a Sunday. That was the day after the Sabbath. Remember the 49 days, the 50th was a Pentecost, which would have been a Sunday. So that, I don't want to, sometimes it's open up, what about Sabbath, you know, 
but it seems the Lord's Day in this instance is for Sunday. Any thought on this? I don't want to belabor it too much. Um, and again, you never see Paul or any in the epistles telling Gentiles to observe the Sabbath. You know, you, you understand? If you observe the Sabbath, you've got to observe the Sabbath. I, mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's from when? Sundown Friday, sundown Saturday, you can only travel about a quarter of a mile. There's all kinds of restrictions. When we do tours to Israel, you gotta, if you're going to do shopping and all that, you've got to have it done before Friday, Sunday. Remember how it was? Matter of fact, at the one hotel, we couldn't go on the regular elevator because they, when you click the thing, they said sparked, and that was like starting a fire. You can't do that on Saturday. So we all had to go to the freight elevator, which was like cable or something. You know, I, but I don't think it's wrong for Christians. That, I know Christians that celebrate the Sabbath. Certain Messianic Jewish Christians would do it. I don't think there's an admonition against it or for it. But I had a funny little incident. Uh, I used to have a guy in my Bible study, and he was real big on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, you know. He says, "John, you got to come to our Sabbath service on." Friday. You know, I said, uh, "His name was John." Also, I don't know if I can do this, John. And uh, so I said, he said, then he finally pressed me. I says, you know what, John, where's it at? He says, it's out in Lorain, Ohio. I says, I can't go to that Sabbath service, John. He says, why not? I says, if I go, I'd be breaking the Sabbath. <laughs> he just like, look. But, um, okay. So now he says, time, okay. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. Uh, first, and saying first, again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, what you see write in a book, send it to the seven churches, there's that seven again, which are in Asia, Asia Minor, uh, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. When I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, here's where we're getting into it, where John is now getting this, this vision of Jesus, as it were, in his, what he's doing here. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, several things happening here. One, where do you, where do you see a lampstand with seven candles? In the Hebrew, huh? In the temple, in the tabernacle. Remember the menorah with the, you know, and, and this clothing, we'll pick it up next week, that Jesus is wearing is suggestive of priestly clothing because it was down to the, the hem down here. It had a sash, and he's moving, almost think of like a high priest moving in what's called the holy place. Here's the holy of holies. Here's the holy place. And he's moving amongst these candles. But John is getting this, and it's going to be interpreted as the seven the churches, the lights these churches have. But now we see, look at his description. Now, don't forget, John is the one that was probably closest to Jesus in his ministry, his lifetime. Now, all of a sudden, he's seeing the, not just the resurrected Christ, he's seeing the glorified Christ at this moment, right? He says, uh, his head uh, and hair were as white as wool, as white as snow, his eyes like the flame of fire, his feet were like brass as it is refined in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Well, how does your voice sound like many waters? Well, we're going to see there's a reference in Ezekiel to that. Powerful, you know, uh, and he's catching a glimpse of this. Now, turn to Daniel chapter 7 for a moment, please. This is Daniel. 
And he gets this vision, perhaps not that much unlike John, just um, Daniel chapter 7. He says in verse 9, Daniel 7, verse 9. He's, he's getting this heavenly vision, the beatific vision as it were. Verse 9, and I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and half his head were like pure wool. Remember what John was referencing. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels burning fire. Fire streamed and issued forth. It came forth before him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him. 10,000 times 10,000. Think they're trying to get this number out here? The court was sealed. The books were open. And I watched, there's pompous words, the horn was speaking. I watched as the beast was slain. Then he says in verse 13, I was watching in the night vision, this is a vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's coming to who here? It's coming to the Father. Remember what it said in Psalm 2? Ask of me and I'll give you the, the, the nations, you know, the Father gives to the, he says, um, he came to the ancient, then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages that serve him, his dominion and everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away his kingdom. We're going to see that happening when we get to chapter 4 and 5 in Revelation. Whatever the scroll is going on, it's the Father who gives it to the Son. You see, it's, it's his. It belongs to him. But do you, are you getting used to the idea that... We, use, we look in Revelation, and that takes us back to the Old Testament. Does that make sense? And that, that's what's kind of laying our groundwork here. Any questions? I'm going to wrap this up in just a second. But he says, in his, and he had in his right hand seven stars, back in Revelation, verse 16, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, this is metaphoric, okay? I mean, what does he mean? There's, does that mean a literal sword is in his mouth? I'm going to talk about this next week. When we deal with apocalyptic language, it's different than dealing with historic narrative, like the Gospels. Jesus got in a boat in Tiberias, like this morning. He goes the other side of Galilee to the Gadarenes. There's a man demon-possessed. He delivered. It's just like almost reading a newspaper. But when you read of a beast coming out of the sea with seven heads, or scorpions coming out with stingers in their tail, that isn't a Loch Ness monster coming up out of Lake Erie. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is metaphor. Or a woman that rides a beast. You see, this is not, yeah, well, we'll get into it. I don't press it. Uh, but we're getting into different language here. Same way in apocalyptic language is different. When Daniel sees a big mountain or a big colossus statue, and he sees a little stone cut from the mountain, and the stone hits it and it collapses, that doesn't, there really wasn't, you know, a little stone, you know. Anyhow, we'll get into this kind of language. It's very important we start rightly dividing the word of truth and realizing there's different genres. When Jesus says, if your right hand offends you and leads you to sin, cut it off. Better go into paradise with one hand than go into hell with both. Well, it's, he's, he's taking something to a limit, a hyperbole, to make his teaching point. If any man does not hate mother, brother, father, more than, he doesn't mean we have to. But in comparison, for our love for him, he's making a point. You can't hate your parents because you'd be breaking the fifth commandment. You know, so we're going to under, we're going to get into the language, which is extremely important. Uh, we're seeing it start here with this sharp two-edged sword. His countenance, like, was the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. 
Now remember, this is John's, Jesus' companion, maybe his closest companion on, on this earth. And I love this. I'll close on this. Jesus is glorified, just worshipped by angels and all this power. John falls down like a dead man. And what does Jesus do? He laid his right hand. He touches him. That's the God we serve, you know. And we're going to study in the Gospels how many times Jesus touches people that holy people weren't supposed to touch. Dead people, leprosy people, woman with an issue of blood. But here in his glorification, John is fearful like a dead man, and he just doesn't speak to him. He does what? He reaches down, and he touches him. Any closing comments on any of this? All right, we'll pick it up then next week and start getting into the seven churches. Okay, who would like to close?